0: I'm Bryce Butler from Access Ventures, and this is More Than Profit, a show where I talk with founders, investors, entrepreneurs, and leaders of all kinds about living and working with purpose, how they do it, and why. My guest this week is, uh, is actually one of my dearest friends. Uh, I've come to know uh, Ross Baird professionally through our shared work at Village Capital and, and now, now at Blueprint Local. Uh, but what was fun to talk about with Ross is the importance of friendship. Uh, friendship to his work, and and how we should prioritize friendship more in our work. Uh, Whenever we travel, Ross and I make it a point to connect. Uh, We've had times together with our families and shared holidays. And so what is most important, I think, for people to hear, especially in this time of COVID-19, is is this value of friendship. If you know Ross or anything about Ross, he has a mind, a drive, and a passion for community, I think actually is is unmatched. He is the type of person that you want to champion. And what has shaped him over the years is equally impressive.
1: Bryce, it's it's great to be here, and and I think being your friend first is is really meaningful. Um, I grew up in Atlanta, and Bobby Jones, the champion golfer, is Atlanta's native son. And he once said something that really stuck with me. He said, "Friends and friendship are the two most important words in the English language." Um, and I have, um, yeah, you know, it, it, what. I do day to day is, um, brings me a lot of joy. It is something I feel called to do. It's something I feel very meaningful. It's also exhausting. I do a million different things and I'm, (laughs) I'm spread very thin some days and it feels like, uh, progress is very hard to make. Um, but I, I think, um, I have, uh, really, I'm, I'm really, really lucky to have a, a very good group that's pretty small of, of very close friends mm-hmm. um, that are probably one of the things I value most about life is the friends I, the very close friends I have that I experience life with, and, and you're one of them. So I'm, Thanks, I'm extremely man. grateful.
0: Well, I think that's an interesting point because uh, I think in our society, there's a lot of statistics around loneliness. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things you've done really, really well uh, is nurture friendships your just intentionality. Uh, I mean, going way back, I was the army of a, I was the son of an army officer. So we moved all the time. So friendship was like this two year thing mm-hmm. that you did at mm-hmm. duty stations. Mm-hmm. Um, but to, to watch kind of you develop lifelong friendships with people, even back in high school and before, uh, and still maintain good relationships, I think is, is, uh, is not a, um, a diminished point in, in kind of who you are as a person.
1: Yeah, I, I know. I appreciate that. I mean, if I think about growing up, I think of the the people. I can point to people who came into my life at certain points who very clearly changed the trajectory of my life. I grew up in um, Atlanta, and if you are familiar with Atlanta, I um, grew up in North Atlanta in a very comfortable upbringing. Um, and I spend most of my time today in, in neighborhoods that do not look like the neighborhood I grew up in. And I, I think about... Um, the church I went to growing up, the youth pastor is a guy named Michael Pulos. He's still a pastor today in North Carolina. Um, and Michael ran a ministry that took a lot of kids who grew up in a pretty comfortable part of Atlanta. And we spent a lot of time out on the streets, uh, spending weekend nights uh, in a downtown shelter, working the overnight shift. Um, you know, we would do church uh you know, exchange trips to Washington D.C. or or Seattle, Washington, with with churches that our church had a relationship with, and we spent a week in a very not very nice part of that town, getting out and about. And so, as I think about um, the trajectory of my life and the things that you notice and you care about, um, the friends I made through that youth experience and the people that I looked up to and 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 model myself after. I mean my my oldest friend in the world his name is Robbie he lives in New York today works in media um, we met when we were four he was in the same church youth group as I was um, we probably communicate three times a week text oh, okay. talk anytime. four years old Dang. yeah <laughs> um, but we you know we went through these formative experiences together and became very very good friends and so it's it's um
0: so talk to me a little bit about some of those formative experiences what what if you could pick a couple or even just one um, where that are kind of stuck in your brain that have been, you mentioned this youth pastor. So that seems rather formative. Are there a couple of others that you think have really shaped you uh, over the last 20, 30 years?
1: Yeah. So I mentioned our, our church every summer and I would look for his favorite week of the year. We would do these exchange trips to other, other parts of the country and there is a church in um, DC that, our pastor i had a relationship with and we'd go and we'd stay in the church basement and work in different whatever things around dc and there was uh, there was this guy um who ran this breakfast soup kitchen ministry his name was ishmael and he was hilarious and he was extremely well organized and he like i loved him like i wanted to be on his team like we (laughs) split up into shifts. and then one evening at dinner we were at a different soup kitchen in a different part of the city and like people coming down the line to get, and Ishmael was in the soup kitchen um, and it turned out like I was like you are my idol and like you are a re- recipient of food what's going on and I sat with him at dinner I was talking to him and it turns out he was um, part-time making minimum wage like stayed in one shelter because it was all he could afford um, but he spent 10 hours a week as the lead volunteer manager at another shelter. And I was kind of like, if you live in a homeless shelter, you like shouldn't have to work in another one. And he was like, I have more than the next guy. I've got a job. I've got a roof over my head. Like why, why wouldn't I? I'm extremely lucky. And I just, uh, I think that the point of, uh, I think that there's a real power dynamic in how money works in society. That's extremely, destructive and we talk about two pocket thinking versus one pocket thing i think you know one thing one direction that that conversation with Ishmael moment is like look i live in a comfortable family i'm in high school i'm almost definitely gonna go to a good college and get a good job i owe something to society so i'm here volunteering this is a guy who is a recipient of my charity like i should serve him why is it the other way around mm-hmm. and in his mind um he yes was um in a tough position in life but he had he was, he was also in a position of privilege over other people and that he had 10 hours a week to volunteer and give. And so, so he did. And so the idea of, you know, some people are winners and they should take care of the losers and other people are losers. And like, they are, should be lucky for their receipt. It's just totally turned on the head. So it, so I think a lot of the thinking of, you know, what do we do with our lives? And Who is in power over whom that, that, that just, uh, I mean, I still remember that was probably, it was probably 20 years ago. I still remember it. Like, well, and I
0: think, um, what I've known about you over the last decade is just kind of watching you, uh, and learning from you. So I think, you know, founder CEO for a long time of village capital, village capital investments. So both the nonprofit and the fund, um, founder of Capital Access Labs, a new initiative uh, between Rock, Rockefeller and Kaufman Foundations, um, and working now on a strategy for opportunity zones. Um, there, there's obviously some threads there, mm-hmm. um, but it's, it's a really powerful story that I think you have carried forward ever since university um, and maybe before that. But what, what would you say, if you could point to a couple of things, what, what is the purpose? Like, what is the driver for Ross Beard to, to get involved. I mean, you could do anything. You went to a top tier college. You had an unbelievable graduate program. Uh, you're exceptionally smart. Um, you're well-connected. What, what's, why, what, why are you pouring yourself into these things, uh, with such a, with such a vigor and such a deep passion?
1: So my, my favorite, uh, class in college is a course called history of the American Revolution taught by a guy named Stephen Ennis um, who sadly passed away um, while I was in college but he was he was incredibly important to me and he uh, his whole thesis was um, America pre pre-colonial America New England um, had the highest literacy rate adjusted for its time in any society and country it was the most equal society um and adjusted for any time in country and he said that the the strength of of puritan new england was in its civic associations and its community he said it was a it was a science brought together by churches schools militia town meetings the pub like it was it was It was a very thick social fabric. And so he said, um, he was talking about Paul Revere's ride. And he's like, the story of Paul Revere is all wrong. Um, Mm -hmm. You have this philosophy that Paul Revere is a hero and he did his This lone lone rider. Yeah. He said, the thing was, the way that they had organized, it's kind of like a telephone tree. The way they had organized it, if Paul Revere were captured, there would have been 10 other men who would have jumped in Mm -hmm. and ridden, uh, and and it was it was the society that created Paul Revere, not you know Paul Revere who did something exceptional, but the society itself was exceptional. Of course, there are all kinds of gender and race issues in 1780s New England, but this this idea of um, friendship and community being stronger than the individual um, is is probably the one through line. So, you know, thinking about village capital, the idea of the hero entrepreneur, the you know, the Travis Kalanick, Steve Jobs, like like this one person who just does things. Um, the, the whole point of Village Capital is entrepreneurs in community with each other can make a bigger dent in problems than by themselves. Um, the idea of Blueprint Local now saying it's not going to be a startup or a big housing development or a ribbon cutting of a, you know, a big announceable or a Amazon putting their headquarters. It's not going to be that strong man that it's going to be thousands of different projects that are all rowing in the same direction that's going to make a distressed part of Louisville or Baltimore um, resilient and proud um, that that's the big through line um, it is uh, it is it is more exhausting and more rewarding to go down that path um, but it's but it's 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 ultimately more rewarding and if you think of I mean I feel very lucky to live in The country we do and in the society we do. And it has been a lot of people over the years for different motivations. Um, sometimes it's faith, sometimes it's code of ethics. Sometimes it's just practical who have, who have put something greater ahead of themselves. Um, I do worry that that is being lost very rapidly. And I think, I think preserving that is really the only, the only hope we have as a society.
0: That's a really good point. So, you're not a spring chicken anymore. You're getting up in years. Younger than younger younger <laughs> than younger, you are. Younger than me. Yeah. Uh, wh- wh- where I'm going with it is, you've you've had some unbelievable experiences that have shaped you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as I talk to young people, and as you've taught young people at UVA or, or other places, um, what are some what are some things you would encourage uh, the younger generation uh, to? to do, uh, in discovering kind of what you've been able to discover and fortunate to discover as it relates to kind of purpose and work, meaning and society and friendship, like, are there some, some experiences or some opportunities that you would, you would put before people to, to throw themselves at?
1: Yeah. Um, our own experiences really kind of are all we have to draw from. So I, I don't, know that I'm t- – I could tell you what I would tell myself 10 to 15 years ago. Let's do that. Um, I think that, um, you know, we've, we've been through a lot. There have been times that have been wonderful and joy-filled, and there were times that have been extremely su- successful, and there have been some dark times. And I think that um, – priority. going back to what I just said, like prioritizing for relationships and the community that you're building um, over – kind of what needs to happen that day is a constant struggle, especially if you want to be effective and accomplish something (laughs) because you do, you can't like, there are lots of people who are, are, um, extremely happy and care zero percent about what they do in their work. And that's actually fine. That's actually like people find meaning in all different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, but I am a person who will always find meaning in my work, and it is important for me, for my work to be successful. And you know sometimes to be successful, you have to make hard and difficult decisions and sometimes to be successful, you get so wrapped up in it that you, but you know, prioritizing for relationships over deliverables is is um, is is one very important thing. I think, um, understanding understanding what that North Star is for you, um, both personally and professionally, is 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 important too. So for example, um I feel very, very grateful to have built Village Capital with with some really wonderful colleagues over time. I think one of the things um towards the end of transitioning out of Village Capital that I recognize is is one um I feel at my best when I'm building. I think building something from zero to 60 miles an hour is a very different skill set than driving on the interstate at 60 miles an hour and not crashing. Both are incredibly (laughs) important. Um, I think the latter is is less my skill set. The former is much more mine. Um, Recognizing that's important um, and also knowing when knowing when you really need to take over versus let others take over is really important. So I think, um, what we are doing with blueprint local, uh, going deeper into a few communities, uh, versus, um, having a very large portfolio, much more is what brings me joy. Um, developing these different theses from, from scratch and building teams that can run it is, is very much in my wheelhouse. So I'd say, I would say prior relationships, um, if you care about what you do professionally, own it uh, and, and and figure out what you are very good at. And then I think the final thing is, um, it's very, very difficult to convince other people to do something they don't want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of leadership is recognizing what other people are good at and optimizing for that versus saying, why aren't you doing this thing that we need to get done? So I, um, you know, Kobe Bryant just passed away and I was, um, Kobe Bryant's favorite book from what I heard was, um, a book that Bill Russell wrote. And there was a piece in that book of how Bill Russell won 11 titles. And there's a piece that book where Bill Russell saw that his teammate, John Havlicek, also a hall of famer was much better. I forget the exact specifics. It was like, he was much better leading a fast break from the left side of the court than the right side of the court. And I have been here. Bill Russell was like four years. He was like, for goodness sakes, can't you like do a fast break on the other side of the court. Sometimes the ball's over here, sometimes the ball's over there. And then he realized, you know, that's not honoring John's strength. And what he did is he practiced when he was going up for rebounds, landing his feet in a position. So as often as possible, he was facing the left side of the court. He's like, I realized it was within John to learn how to go down the right side of the court. But it's also within me to learn how to pass to the left side of the court. And that's much more in my control. So I think... Um, yeah, having a sense of what's in your control and what's not is, is a lesson that's been hard for me and it's still hard every day, but I, I, I think every day I get a little bit better.
0: Those are some, those are really good. And I think, man, just knowing you. So I'm, as you're talking, I'm reminded of just these memories of my own in, in interaction with you. Like one of them I know was at a SOCAP several years ago. Um, you're super busy, but because, because you prioritize friendship, you're like, you're very into like, Hey, let's get 30 minutes. It's all the time we had, but like, let's just get 30 minutes. We're, we're going to step aside from what's going on. We're just going to connect. And I think, you know, in a practical way to kind of punctuate what you said, I think that's, uh, that's an important thing that oftentimes we miss. We, we get really busy. And I think what you've been able to do and be effective at doing is, uh, is making is prioritizing those friendships, which leads to the to some of the blueprint stuff. Because it's really interesting that literally a couple of years ago, over drinks as friends, you, me, and Graham talking about what what could what could be uh, done at scale um, across the country to mobilize capital to places that that are uh, underserved, underestimated, and uh, it's cool to see where Blueprint Local is today as as a strategy to do that. So, talk to us a little bit about what you. What you're working on with Blueprint, um, what you're excited about with Blueprint, um, and then we'll get into some of the some of the challenges after that.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of one of the most meaningful experiences for me has been working with you and Access Ventures um, on the investment in Shelby Park, which we called the Street Corner Investment, and it really um, it really made a lot of sense to me hearing you and the team's vision of we are here, this is where we work, we are going to invest. <laughs> across all types of products, housing and commercial real estate and growing businesses. And we're going to invest in the arts right, right here where we are. That I had not thought of it that way. And it made a lot of sense to me. And I think working with you on that and the path of saying, if we can do it here, um, we can only control what we can control to go. But if we can do this in a neighborhood where we are spending a lot of time, um, why, why couldn't it be done other places? And I think, um, you know, to think big, you have to think small. One of the things that I, uh, we, I know we've talked about is in, you know, in the Christian tradition, there is in, you know, in the Bible there, is, Jesus has a promise to be you know, king of the world. And people thought that meant one conception, which going back to the power of it, I'm going to be the emperor of Rome. I'm going to rule over everyone. And what, Jesus actually has never really left about a thirty-mile radius, and I think part of that is intentional to say, like, here is what, here is what taking care of your community looks like. Mm-hmm. And so he then trains up and sends out um, apostles to say, "You, you can do. If I can do this, you can do this." And so um, I think when people say scale, 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 it means be as big as possible. It's actually if you can do very meaningful work in a ten-block radius you can do it in many 10 block races. And so, so part of the thought of, of blueprint local is I, I do think the size of wall street and the size of Silicon Valley and, and you know, the, the size of, of government programs, which has given people a lot of despair because it's just the way money moves in the world is completely inaccessible. So the thought of being hyper local and how we think thoughtfully and investing in a neighborhood, it's just, it, it connects with a lot of threads that are meaningful in my life.
0: Yeah. And so if, if I could, what, what are some of the challenges? So you've been at this with blueprint now for a couple of years, Mm -hmm. uh, in initial conception, mobilizing partners, been a part of kind of trying to shape some of you in the policy even, Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the challenges you see uh, as you press into the kind of the next stage of, of this community, um, vision that you have?
1: Uh, I mean, it's, to me, it's not new or different. I mean, I think if we were, I think if we were in uh, New England in in seventeen seventy one and said, "Here's what we're trying to do," people be, be like, "Of course." But I mean, or the 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 Northwest Ordinance, the very first law that our Congress passed after the Constitution, said two things. It said, "People will move to these states, and people will have no more than forty acres, and slavery will not be allowed." So it was like people will be property owners and everyone will be free. Like these are, these are foundational principles um, that have gone away, but I think that there are a lot of entrenched interests with where the system is that either fear change. And in many cases, right fully so because changes usually meant bad things for a lot of communities where there's a lot of institutional discrimination um, or don't really have any incentives to change. It's like, things are pretty good for me. Why mm-hmm. would I, why would I, why would I, why would I change it? So to say we're moving from a, big dominated world to a small dominated world, you know, people who control power and money are pretty big. It. Mm-hmm. So it's like, why, why would I do anything different? Yeah.
0: So, you know, with opportunity zones, there's, there's a lot of critics, mm-hmm. you know, cause it's still, it's still relatively new. And like you just said, people fear what they don't know. Mm-hmm. And, um, What do you, what do you say to some of those critics, especially, um, because it's not unfounded. You know, you've Mm -hmm. got a lot of, a lot of hurt that's been done, a lot of harm that's been done to communities, disinvested communities, communities of color Mm -hmm. historically over the years. And it's perceived as yet one more program, uh, who at the end of the day, what at the end of the day, it's going to lead to wealth extraction versus wealth creation. Uh, if I could borrow your phrase, but I think, I think it's an important piece and I think it's it's off also distinctive between what I see as an imperative of blueprint and what I see in some some of it. So how do how do you balance and how do you how do you answer those those questions to critics?
1: I think there I think there are two answers. I think one anyone doing business with a community that has been disadvantaged um, has to meet a high bar of of ethical behavior. I think the intentionality of what you are trying to do and the sensitivity to what the outcomes are has to be very high. And so I would say um, a criticism of, I mean, capitalism has been incredibly parasitic in poor neighborhoods from dollar stores to check cashers to, you know, people Buying up and moving people like there have been a lot of bad actors So I'd say a criticism is is justified but b the status quo isn't working I mean there are like I have spent a huge part of my career in neighborhoods where If we change nothing, it's only getting worse and I think people Fear is fear is very natural people have a very and look at our politics People have a very good sense of what they are against people do not have a good sense of what they are for. So um, if we were to say, go in and build 400 units of housing and 100% are affordable at, let's call it 100 to 100% area median income, um, people would say that's gentrification. You're building nice housing in this poor neighborhood. People in poor neighborhoods deserve great housing. People in poor neighborhoods deserve grocery stores. People in poor neighborhoods deserve jobs and it will take change to get there. So... But I think people say we don't want change, dot dot dot. Therefore, all change is bad, which is totally understandable. But if you say here is what great housing means, here is what we are for, um, here is what we are trying to accomplish, that is a productive way. I think. I think you look at people's uh, opinions of political parties. People's opinions. I mean. The modern uh, church is very defined by what it's against. And you see church membership at an all-time low, which is, um, you know, if if all you hear from church is, we don't like these people or we don't like those people, that uh, it, especially if you are in a person in that category, I understand. Um, so I, I think it is easy um, but intellectually lazy to say, here's what we're against. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very hard to say, here's what we're for.
0: And so with uh with impact investing. Mm-hmm. You and I have talked about this before. There's there's a video I think several years ago. Um which I think fits in with the with the the stuff around blueprint and village capital and all the work that you've done around disinvested communities. What what do you think it's going to take for this to move into the mainstream to to become uh, a need to have versus this nice to have. What 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 are the hurdles that we as a society still? Um, because the data is there. I mean, yeah. the data shows that that they outperform. The data shows that um, this provides greater flexibility and opportunity for people to have economic mobility. Um, what what are the hurdles that you think uh, we still have yet to to overcome?
1: You know, I think people have a very. Um messed up relationship with money. I think it's it's um, people don't understand. The average person doesn't understand what their money is doing in the world. If you go to X university, you have no idea. You might hate gentrification, displacement, but you might have no idea that your university's endowment is invested in private equity funds that are doing that. Um, You might care a lot about climate, but a lot of your retirement account might be invested in companies that have a horrible record on climate and you don't know that. but I think people also want safe and secure retirements. People want low tuition at universities. people want things that money delivers. And so I think I think um, people are incentivized not to ask questions and so there's there's a there's a kind of transparency and fear. I think the the reason why we talk about one pocket all the time is I, I think we, there's only so much we can control. We can control what we do with our money and we can control what we do with our time. And if we ask hard questions and it's extremely uncomfortable around my time, my career, my job, am I doing something that is meaningful to me and reflect my values? Um, A lot of people say yes. A lot of people say no. Um, Mm -hmm. But a lot of people don't ask the question, you know, or is my money or the money of the institutions that have a meaningful interaction with my life? Is that, backing up until until people ask that question as intentionally as they ask the question of um, you know I, I don't know I mean people people all the time would say, I, I, there, there are behavior changes that are slow 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 fast like in the 60s when the idea of seat belts came about like nobody, Anyway, wear seatbelts. But today, like, if I took your daughter in my car and I said, "Oh, she doesn't need to wear a seatbelt," you say, "Are you crazy?" <laughs> um, my hope is like, like if if I go to X University and I say, you know, I care a lot about climate, is my endowment is the endowment manager an X Y Z company? They'd say, "Yeah, but it's making us lots of money." Like, like there's a behavior It's Like, are you crazy? It's not. It's not worth it. And mm-hmm. so, until people. Like we're so disconnected in our, we, we, and I think people have forgotten that they have power over their time and their money because it's so disconnected. In a lot of cases, opaque, and I think in in a lot of times, and it's trans, it's intentionally opaque. Like, but everyone has agency to ask questions around what's my money doing, what's my time doing. Yeah. So,
0: 10, 20 years in the future, mm-hmm. uh, you're working really hard at um, Blueprint mm-hmm. and trying to figure out. I think a thoughtful and intentional deployment uh, that af- achieves the intent of that, that legislation. Give me a picture of what those communities look like. In your mind, if, like if if we're able to do this thing that we are aspiring to do, to coordinate capital and to serve these communities, what, what mm-hmm. does that look like 10, 20 years from now?
1: Um, I think that people feel... In the communities feel free to pursue what they want to. I think that if I want to start a business today, I'm like, A, I don't have the safety net to do it, B, I don't have the access to capital to do it, C, if I have an idea for a I don't know, ex business, how could I possibly get the storefront to do it? it the market is not free at all. It's highly constrained. Um, if I were to say, Hey, I'd love to be a teacher, I'd be like, but I also want to live in the city that I grew up in and how can teachers afford that? I mean, I would say that it comes down to um, two things. So one kind of individual freedom to choose what you value and do what you value. And two, I think people feel connected to something bigger than themselves. And I, I think about, um, I think about the communities that where people do feel, pride or things that people feel pride in people feel pride in sports teams because it represents something bigger than you people feel pride um you know i think i think there's a book uh by robert putnam called our kids and it it traces a very simple thing like it's he said 30 years ago when people said our kids they meant our kids of the neighborhood like like our our kids going to go to good schools and today when people say our kids they talk about me and my wife's kids and so it's like like do people feel ownership over a community's kids in future versus I'm getting mine. And cause I feel like there's not enough to go around. So I think, I think mindset of scarcity today goes to mindset of abundance. and We're, we're all going to be okay.
0: If you'd like to learn more about Ross, he writes frequently for Kaufman.org and the new localism, but you can also find this and other great things by staying connected to him on Twitter at Ross Baird. Again, if you've liked what you've heard, drop us a review, subscribe and stay tuned for next week's episode. Check out our work at accessventures.org. I'm Bryce Butler. Thanks for listening.